0: The political circus is gearing up for 2024. Meanwhile, Americans are suffering from the costs of the political elite. Join the Mises Institute at Fort Myers, Florida on November 4th for an event dedicated to the White House, the Fed and the economy. We'll cut through the campaign rhetoric to look at the future of the U.S. economy with a lineup, including Bob Murphy, Patrick Newman, Jonathan Newman and Murray Sabrin. Register now at Mises.org FL 23. Human Action Podcast listeners can receive a special $10 discount using promo code FL2023. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy.
1: Alex, welcome to the Human Action Podcast.
2: Thank you. Great to be here with you.
1: Yeah, I'm glad to have this conversation. I'm looking forward to it. I've been following your work on the Fed. Before we dive into that, though, I did get feedback from uh, one of my listeners at one point saying, hey, if you're bringing on somebody that we may not have heard from before, can you give a little of the background? So I know you've got uh, a background that's very uh, relevant to what we're gonna be talking about today, so maybe before we dive into the material, can you just explain your uh, your autobiography? I can.
2: I uh, started working in banking in the year 1969, uh, having before that been a student of philosophy, and I found a philosophical approach to financial problems very useful. I think that fits quite well with the Mises Institute uh, philosophy itself. Uh, The year 1970 brought the first financial crisis that I lived through, uh, many coming. It was the collapse of the Penn Central Railroad. And the uh, and the panic in the commercial paper market and the bailout by the Fed. Well, we've seen that. I have seen that many times uh, since in the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s, uh, and uh, the 2010s, and now the 2020s. So we, uh, uh, I have, uh, I worked in banking up until 2004. I was the president and CEO of the Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago Uh, from 1991 to 2004. I then joined the American Enterprise Institute uh, and the think tank world and have worked on from from a think tank point of view, financial policy issues and the, uh, the nature of financial systems and why they get in trouble and the nature of central banking. Uh, and how central banks are entangled uh, in the financial system and its problems. Um, in uh, 2019 to 21, I was with the Office of Financial Research of the U.S. Treasury, and now I have the very great uh, pleasure and privilege of being associated with the Mises Institute. So thanks again very much for inviting me out.
1: Oh, sure thing. Yeah, I'm glad, glad to have you here, and uh, we definitely uh, have benefited from your experience uh, in, in your talks in the I've seen you do other interviews and of course you're you're writing for mises.org. So what I wanted to have you come on today to talk about was you you have a recent post but if I if people go google Alex Pollock fed insolvent or fed bankrupt there's this isn't something that you just started talking about 3 weeks ago. So That's I, correct. Yeah, so I <laughs> suppose maybe for the listener I, I like how you said a philosophical approach. Can you maybe before we talk about central banking just in general What does it mean when we say that a firm or an uh, an entity is insolvent? What what do we mean by that?
2: There are two senses of the word insolvent. But before I get to them, maybe I could mention, if people are interested in my work, I have a website. It's alexjpollock.com, all written together, alexjpollock.com. And all of my uh, essays, articles, books, and things Actually, you can buy my books on that website, if you had a mind, uh, are on that website covering probably the last uh, six or seven years. So should you be interested, uh, that's, that's a way to do it. Now, insolvency, there are two senses of the word insolvency. One is that your liabilities are greater than your assets. That is to say, your capital is negative. That's called technical insolvency. Uh, your liabilities are what you owe. Your assets are what you own uh, to repeat accounting 101. And if what you owe is bigger than what you own, well, then you're, te- well, we say, technically insolvent. But you might still be able to keep operating. And then the other um, sense of insolvency means you actually are out of money and can't pay your bills. And they, when you look in the cash drawer, it's empty. Uh, and so your creditors are, are out of luck. And insolvency is not the same as bankruptcy. Insolvency, in the second sense, where you actually cannot pay, uh, can lead to bankruptcy, which is a court overseen uh, distribution of your assets or plan for what you're going to do to to make deals with the creditors, or it could even be a liquidation of the organization. Um, uh, But you can be. But insolvency is not the same as bankruptcy, although they're often, often confused. Now, the Federal Reserve is technically insolvent. That is to say, uh, its losses are greater than its capital. Therefore, it owes more in liabilities than it owns in, uh, in investments and assets. Uh, but it is not insolvent in the sense that it can't pay because in order to pay, it can always print up some more money. That is, as long as we're in a, a fiat currency or a paper money system. So the Fed is a, an interesting special special case uh, uh, to look at.
1: Okay, yeah. Be- before we talk about the central bank, though, I think maybe and this is such second nature to you that, um, but let's, if we can just dwell a little bit on that first distinction that you made between the two senses of insolvency. It's because I think for some listeners, if they're not familiar with this, they might say, I don't understand the difference. If if you owe more than you own, isn't that the same thing as saying you can't pay your bills? But part of it is because the first technical sense means like the market value of your assets and liabilities. So it's not necessarily
2: yeah. We can talk about insolvency on a market value basis. That is to say, we mark all of your assets and liabilities to market and we see if liabilities are greater than assets. But you can also be technically Uh, insolvent just on a gap, a a generally accepted accounting principles Mm -hmm. basis in that your losses have consumed all of your capital. That is the case of the Federal Reserve, but you can still have cash. Well, let's say just to take and make it uh, uh, an example close to home, let's say you ran up all your your credit cards and you uh, don't have any savings and you owe all this money. And you're insolvent, uh, but you still have a couple of credit cards that will allow you to to charge things on them. So you're still able to pay, even though you're technically mm-hmm. insolvent. Or uh, uh, you still could have some
1: cash. Yeah, you could still have two hundred bucks in your checking account, but yeah, if you're just
2: looking at what your assets you $200 and two hundred bucks in your checking yeah. account, and you're still able to pay, but but you're insolvent in the sense right. that you owe more. Uh, than you then you have assets that could happen uh for with a house, for example, since you uh, uh you could have a mortgage which ends up to be bigger than the market value of your house let's say you, you bought the house for three hundred thousand dollars and you borrowed two hundred and fifty thousand and the value of the house goes down to two hundred now you owe more than you have an asset, but you only But you're still able to make your monthly payment because you still have some cash. Is that clear? Yes. So you you can be technically insolvent without being insolvent in the sense of can't pay the bills. You can be insolvent without being in bankruptcy. uh, For sovereign borrowers, one of the most uh, common events in financial history is the default by governments on their debt. I'm often asked, well, how about the U.S. government? Hasn't it always uh, paid off its bills? And I enjoy uh, citing that there are four occasions in history when the United States government defaulted on its debt. Uh, but with a sovereign, you, you can't put them into bankruptcy. The sovereign says, I'm not paying. What are you going to do about it? By the way, I have this army. <laughs> right. I'm I'm surprised to hear that there's four
1: cases because because Joe Biden has been assuring us that the U.S. government has always honored its financial commitments. Yeah, well,
2: every every president and every secretary of the treasury says that's simply not true.
1: (laughs) Now, are you? I'm curious. Are you referring to the episodes involving gold or things beyond
2: that? Yes. Okay. Uh, One in gold. The most notable default uh, was the failure in 1933. Uh, of the government to make good on its explicit and unambiguous promise to pay its bonds in gold coin. And the US government simply said to the holders of those bonds, uh, tough luck, we're not paying, and uh, there's nothing you can do about it. Well, what they did about it was sue them, and the case ultimately got to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court in about 1935 decided on a five to four vote. That if you were the government, you were the sovereign, and if you decided not to pay, as the Congress had decided not to pay, uh, that was it. Of course, on top of that, the government took the people's gold, gave them much less valuable paper money in exchange, and then made it illegal for, for American citizens to own any gold, either in the U.S. or abroad with huge fines and potential prison is an act of amazing despotism by the United States government following on their default in 33. And if I'm not, I'm not
1: sure, Alex, can I ask you, do you know that? Yeah. I believe you couldn't even write a contract referring to the world price of gold. Like you couldn't say, yeah, I'm going to cut your lawn and then you're going to pay me based on.
2: Yeah. Right. You couldn't make contracts payable in gold.
1: I mean, uh, like p- pay dollars based on the gold price. That's
2: what I'm saying. So, like, you could say, no, I'm not getting yeah, paid no, you in gold, but. You couldn't, you yeah. could, you, you couldn't index right. uh, to gold. So, that's an example. Now, the, the, actually, the most important, that's not the most important default. The most important default by the United States was in 1971. It was also a gold default uh, when we simply refused to honor our obligation. We reneged, we defaulted our obligation to pay foreign governments and central banks in gold for their dollars. Uh, The reason for this, I've just been reading Murray Rothbard's Mm. book, thinking of me as rereading it uh, on what has the government done to our money about this very interesting series of of events. And uh, since the U.S. was running out of gold uh, by 1971, in fact, a then little known, pretty young, gentleman named Paul Volcker, who was a part of the, working in the Treasury at the time, and he had a charge of keeping track of the chart of the decline of the gold owned by the United States as people, as foreign governments, notably France uh, in those days, but others as well, says, well, you're committed to paying gold, we want the gold. And the gold was on a graph that was going like this. And so our result was in 1971, uh, we uh, said, well, we're not paying, that's it. And uh, in the subsequent negotiations, there was a lot of people, other countries were unhappy about this, gave rise to a famous famous comment by the then Secretary of the Treasury, John Connolly, which was, it's our currency, but it's your problem. (laughs) <laughs> Not too sympathetic. Anyway, now this is really important because that 1971 event, or if you put these two events together, the 33 refusal to pay in gold to the to American citizens, among others, and the 71 refusal to pay created the modern pure fiat currency central bank, like the like the Federal Reserve of today, which has no limits no limits on how much money it can create by crediting its books or by printing up currency. Uh, And thereby, as as the great intellectual fathers of the Mises Institute, being from Mises himself, uh, Hayek, uh, Rothbard and others pointed out, we get a perpetual problem of inflation and of constant expansion of the government power because if you need some money you just print it up and so these defaults actually are very closely tied uh, to the topic of the day which is can you understand um, what the federal reserve as the world's leading central bank we, we should know the federal reserve is the central bank of the united states but it's also the central bank of the whole world insofar as the world uses dollars, which is the dominant currency uh, in the world uh, for payments and for the holding of, uh, they're called reserves, and holding of assets in uh, currencies other than your own country's currency, the dollar is the dominant currency, and therefore the Fed is actually, in a very important way, central bank to the world, uh, not only to this country. And in this role, the central bank to the world it intrinsically uh, has no limits into how much it can print up uh, or write into its books except when the inflation really gets out of control then they have to react uh, as we have seen over the last year and a half or so Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: i think it might help the listeners to understand you know just to think through because again i i really want to hit the accounting and just to get your thoughts on like what does it mean so I think one thing is the the casual listener might have thought that it, we should explain. There's the Federal Reserve, at least ostensibly, is like another bank in that it, it's not just printing up money and buying tanks and planes for the government, sending out you know food stamps. It's buying assets like treasuries and mortgage-backed securities that have a yield and that, you know, it keeps its books and can report how much profit it made in a certain quarter yes. and so forth. So can you just talk yes. a little bit about that?
2: This is uh, that's very important, Bob. The, um, the Federal Reserve Bank is a bank. It's a different thing. It's a political body. It's an enormously powerful body. Uh, in my opinion, and that of uh, many of our colleagues, it's an extremely dangerous uh, organization. But, um, but among other things, it is a bank, like mm-hmm. other banks. Well, to be precise, it's 12 banks. Mm-hmm. There are 12 Federal Reserve banks. Uh, they're numbered 1 to 12, starting in the east in Boston, and then New York and Philadelphia and so on, and going west out to San Francisco. There are 12 of these. Uh, and uh, But when we put them all together, plus the the Federal Reserve Board, or technically the the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. Uh, That altogether makes the Fed, what we call the Federal Reserve, all right. So you add up all these 12 banks together. And like their banks, they have assets, as you say, they have investments, they have deposits, they borrow money, they have capital. By the way, this is important. Who owns the stock? Have you ever thought about this? Who owns the stock of the 12 Federal Reserve Banks? first of all a lot of people don't know they have stock you don't know they're corporations but they do have stock and if you say who owns it they say well it must be the government but that is not correct the stock of the federal reserve banks is owned by the private banks in that district uh, who are members we say members of the federal reserve who is that well it's every every national bank every bank which has a national charter like first national bank of anything Uh, has to be a member and must buy stock in the fed under the federal reserve uh, act originally passed in 1913 and then and then banks which are chartered by individual states state banks if they're chartered illinois or iowa or florida or whatever state they happen to be in they may join Uh, now those private banks own the stock uh, of the federal reserve and have paid in to buy that stock 36 billion dollars uh, in the aggregate uh, that's the paid paid in capital as we say uh, of the 12 federal reserve banks all if you've had them up and the federal gets to get ahead of our story a little bit the the federal reserve losses can,
1: can i stop um, you just for a second month. there alex again, again. so yeah. some people Especially like progressives on the left, they think that's all you need to know. Oh, it's privately owned. But and then some people are right. Well, no. But in any event, it is a weird thing. Like, imagine if Pfizer owns right. stock in the FDA. Like, that would just be weird. And so that's kind of what we have here, yes. where it's,
2: the Fed well, is the thing I mean, Yeah. that regulates them and right. that it's owned by the them. The Fed in, in 1913, this was a result of a set of political compromises uh, in the day. Uh, And, uh, Some of the most important founding fathers of the Federal Reserve didn't want there to be a single central bank, so they thought that would be too powerful, a centralized, and guess what, a centralized central bank, if you happen to be printing up the dominant currency in the world, is very powerful indeed. So they thought if you had these 12 different Federal Reserve banks, which were owned by the local private banks. Mm -hmm who elected two-thirds of the members of the board of directors, these things are corporations. They have a board of directors, they have officers, uh, and they have a balance sheet. As we said before, there's investments, deposits, borrowing, stock, uh, and they have a profit and loss statement that has income and expense. Uh, I was just going to say before, and I'll sneak this in here, uh, currently the the expense of the Federal Reserve to pull together is so much greater than their income that they have lost not only all, they have losses greater than all of their capital. Uh, but on top of that, they've lost another $60 billion, These numbers are astonishing. Anyway, so in a way, they're banks. Uh, but in another way, they're agents of the government, the Federal Reserve Board. Is clearly a uh, a government agency. It has doesn't have a balance sheet. I mean, other than some computers and whatnot, uh, they, all of the banking things are, are in the banks. So one of the uh, one of the fathers of the Federal Reserve Act uh, was a gentleman named Carter Glass, uh, who was a congressman from Virginia when the act was passed. He later was the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, also was Secretary of the Treasury during his career. And it is said that he used to like to ask witnesses uh, before the banking committees, after the Fed was founded, does the Federal Reserve, uh, I'm sorry, does the United States, does the United States have a central bank? And the answer that he wanted was no, it mm-hmm. does not it has a federal system of 12 reserve banks. So that's what the federal, Federal Reserve, mm-hmm. they were trying to have a federal, as in federalism, right, uh, as in states and central government, you were going to have this dispersed power. Now, two things have happened in the history of the Fed, which has now lasted 110 years. One is, that the Fed has become ever more powerful than it was in the beginning, and with each decade that goes uh, by they become more powerful. Uh, and the other thing is that the power has become ever more centralized than Washington. So It started off with this federal idea and it is now uh, the power has all, not all, it's almost all gravitated to the center. Uh, so it, you get a centralization of power and a growth of power. Very interesting story. An, an old friend of mine named Bernard Scholl, I wrote a great book, which I recommend to you, on uh, the history of the Fed, uh, called The Fourth Branch. Mm. Uh, the uh, I think it's The Unlikely Rise to Power of the Federal Reserve, or something like that. Uh, in this book, Bernard Schull S-H-U-L-L, says, uh, here's a fascinating thing. No matter how many blunders the Fed makes, the more blunders it makes, the more powerful it gets. And that does seem to be a... Uh, uh, an accurate uh, summation of the history
1: and just to help the listeners uh put your remarks in context there like for example there's the bank of england the bank of france the you know bundesbank yes. and such these
2: days bank of canada late, but memory, they, yeah yes. they didn't call it first the late, bank of the u.s they didn't call it the bank of the that's right didn't call it the bank there's the bank of canada as you say mm-hmm. the bank of england the bank of france okay. the bank of italy uh but this uh this was the Federal Reserve for a reason at the time, but in fact, it has become the Bank of uh, the United States. Now and and I, all that
1: central, a, that major reorganization happened in the, under
2: FDR as well, like moving the power from major New York to D.C.
0: Yeah,
2: There was a major centralization of power in the Federal Reserve in 1935, in the Banking Act of 1935, which took a lot of the power out of the, uh, the regional federal reserve banks uh, and put it uh into washington
1: yeah my was understanding under, right was that like the individual like cuz i remember when i was doing research for my book on the great depression that before that reorganization like you couldn't just go look at what are the assets held by the fed it was what's the what's the new york fed have what's well, you know like it was it was even well, that's tabulated, still the case.
2: But, yeah. no, i mean i know you could all-
1: do that but they you could, they didn't even report the aggregates like you, the, the raw well, data yeah.
2: I, just, I didn't know that that's <laughs> yeah. very that's, that would fit the history mm-hmm. that would fit the history so now you can see uh the consolidated the, the, all is the combination of all the banks you can also see the you can also see the consolidating statement so you see each of the mm-hmm. 12 federal reserve banks adding Adding up to the total. Well, when you add them up to the total, they're an eight trillion dollar organization, is a massive uh, organization. With the explosion of their balance sheet over the last decade, they got up to almost nine trillion. It's still it's still Mm -hmm. eight trillion, which is which is is huge.
1: So I know uh, for commercial banks, for example, if they had bought a bunch of treasuries back when interest rates were really low. And then of course with the aggressive rate hikes they might have in terms of you know if they had, if they had to market to market that they would have lost a bunch of money but so long as they can hold it to maturity they might be okay it doesn't have a cash flow implication so i'm wondering oh, no, it does
2: actually oh, okay. it does well, actually that, this I, is very important yeah so it's very important. so go ahead yeah. if you can it's elaborate it's on much, that yeah i will it's much more likely uh, that instead of buying treasuries, although that's often said, they probably bought mortgage-backed securities. So they were buying interest in thirty-year fixed-rate loans, very long-term with a with a rate that's locked in uh, for up to thirty years. And these are these are famously difficult uh, assets uh, to manage success, successfully in terms of the interest rate risk. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, a notable case of that was Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank uh, bought very large numbers of mortgage-backed securities, tens of billions, uh, and suffered very great mark-to-market losses on them uh, and funded them. Here's the key, you always have to ask about a bank balance sheet. All right, what are the assets and what are the liabilities? And a good way to get yourself in trouble if you're a bank is to invest in very long-term fixed-rate assets, especially when interest rates are low, uh, and fund them with deposits or other liabilities whose rate goes up and down in the short term. We call that a floating rate liability. Then when interest rates go up, as happened to Silicon Valley. Uh, and this is why the cash flow is actually very important. Let's say you bought a whole bunch of mortgages to yield mortgage-backed securities to yield 2% uh, when mortgages were 3% because the mortgage-backed security doesn't pay you the same as the underlying mortgage. It pays you 1%, 1% or so less. So now you own all these uh, All these mortgages, and you're going to have them for a very long time, they don't really mature for 30 years, but maybe you'll have them for 10 years, and uh, they're giving you 2%, and you're financing them with deposits or borrowings, and suddenly those are costing you 5%. Now, you might say, well, I'm not selling my mortgages. I'm just sitting on them, and I'll just hold them until they mature. But in the meantime, you're going to go broke if you did this, if you did too much of this, because you're getting 2% a year income and 5% a year expense. So it's costing you 5% to finance or to fund the the assets, which are yielding you 2%. Now that's, that's the principal reason Silicon Valley Bank went broke. Now in a private bank, of course, the depositors can say, "I've had enough of this and taking my money out," mm-hmm. and then, they, then they become insolvent in the, in the serious sense, and then they fail. They don't go into bankruptcy in a bank under our laws. They go into government control receivership mm-hmm. of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and their uh, and the government disposes of them in some way. Maybe sells them, maybe liquidates them. But this notion of investing in assets, which are very long and always have the same fixed rate for years and years and years, in funding them with deposits or borrowings, whose cost rises with the market. That's a fundamental uh, extreme risk and extreme and uh, classic mistake in banking. It's what put the savings and loans out of business in the 1980s uh, when the savings and loan industry collapsed, basically. Uh, It's what Silicon Valley Bank and others did. And guess what? It's exactly what the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve looks like today. Mm -hmm. The Federal Reserve owns two and a half trillion dollars of mortgage-backed securities and of 30-year mortgage loans. And their average yield is approximately just a little over 2%. On top of this, uh, they own $5 trillion of long-term treasuries. Treasuries uh, that mature out to 2050 with very low yields. Their average yield is a little less than 2%. And it is costing the Federal Reserve today approximately 5.4 percent to fund these investments. So even though they say, well, we're not selling it, you know, oh, well, and what's their mark-to-market? Well, their mark-to-market, you know, is minus one trillion dollars. They have a mark-to-market loss on their securities portfolio if, if they i had to either say what are they really worth on the market or if i really had to sell them of course if you really had to sell them they wouldn't be worth that they'd be worth much less If a gigantic investor dumping stuff on the market would drive the price down but uh, at current prices they have about one trillion dollars uh in market value that's less that is they take the security and look in the market and say what's what's its price what did i pay for it and the price is a lot less than I paid for it. That's a loss. Just like if you bought some stock at $100 a share and it went down to 80 Well, that's a $1 trillion mark-to-market loss. But then, then it is said sometimes, well, but that's just the mark-to-market. They're not really going to sell them. They're just going to hang on. True. But in the meantime, in order to hang on, you have to be paying over 5% to fund them. So what is your result of that position? Well, it's Income, 2%. Cost, 5%. And I like to say, you know, you don't have to be a certified financial analyst or a PhD in economics or an expert in central banking to know that if you're lending money at 2% and borrowing money at 5%, you're not going to... You're not going to like the net result. And so the Federal Reserve in the last 12 months has lost $100 billion doing the same thing that Silicon Valley Bank did, doing the same thing the savings and loans did in the 1980s. And all this is unprecedented. This creation of the balance sheet that they did is unprecedented in their history. And uh, you have to say really... Really, quite fascinating. Among the things it demonstrates is it shows how true it is that the Fed doesn't know the financial future any more than anybody else. They got themselves into this colossal loss, and I I think everyone would agree that the leadership of the Fed did not intend to lose one hundred billion dollars, and they're going to lose another hundred, by the way, in the next year. So, they didn't mean to do that, but they didn't, they took a risk without knowing what was going to happen. And uh, so here we are. So, it's a good, a good example of a you know, fundamental problem. If you think central banks are going to save you uh, by managing the economy in a good you know, socialist uh, dream, mm-hmm. the answer is they're not. And they're not for the great. Mises and Hayek' reason is that no one can have the knowledge to do that, and the Fed doesn't have the knowledge to do it either.
1: Exactly. So before we move on to like the more <laughs> philosophical implication, like what does it all mean? I just you're going to think I wasn't listening. I I know what you're saying, I, but I want to make sure that the listeners got that distinction you made between an unrealized capital loss and like a cash flow mismatch, because I think some of them might be thinking. What do you mean like the Fed creates a million dollars and you know out of thin air electronically buys a million dollars worth of bonds and then that's it and it just sits on them. and yeah had they known rates were going to rise maybe they should have waited and they could but what do you mean it's costing them 5%? They created the money. It doesn't cost them money. The Fed's not borrowing money. The Fed creates money. Yes. So can you explain yes, the Fed that?
2: no is borrowing you know, money. No, I, the Fed I know, but money. I'm, I'm getting in the head of How business. much? Yeah. Money. Yeah, yes, you're right. And how much money do they borrow? And the answer is $5 trillion. Some of the money the Fed borrows are deposits, like any bank. And they have to pay interest on those deposits. Um, and they pay, as I said, about 5.4%. Uh, now, it'll, if interest rates go higher, it will be more. The Fed also borrows money uh, from the money markets in what are called repurchase agreements, which are, are bar- secured borrowings where the Fed uh, gives uh, its uh, treasury securities to, let's say, a money market fund. The money market fund lends the money to the Fed. Uh, and that they pay 5.3%. So thank you very much, Bob, for pointing us out. Yes, the Fed, although it creates money on these deposits and these borrowings, it has to pay uh, a lot of interest and a lot more than, than there is income. Now, there is a part of their balance sheet on which they do not pay any money, and that is the amount of currency in circulation. So the five and ten and one dollar bills that you've got in your wallet do not give you any interest. And the Fed doesn't Fed literally prints them in that case. It's literal printing. Uh, And they get interest free funding. It costs them zero. And how much, you may wonder, currency of United States paper currency is there? the answer is 2.3 trillion dollars is and a lot of it you know it's it's a, in our country but a lot of it is also in the wallets in many other countries uh, where US dollars are used instead of whatever local currencies are there now if you only did that and then you invested the money at current rates let's say you had 2 trillion dollars and you just bought treasury bills with it, uh, and those paid you 5%, then that would be $100 billion a year profit. We call that the seignorage. That's the profit that the Fed makes from having a monopoly of, of paper money issuance. There's nothing in nature that says the central bank has to have such a monopoly. That's a, that's a political grant by the Congress in order for the government to make money on the currency issue. In the 19th century, private banks issued currency. So you could have, say, a $2 bill from the third state bank in Skunk Creek, Wisconsin, or something. Uh, and, but that was all taken away politically and, and replaced by a Federal Reserve monopoly. And that monopoly is enormously valuable and profitable. So note, if they had stuck to that, just the money that's literally printed and in investing that, they would have made something like, these days, $100 billion a year. Uh, but by their unfortunate uh, speculation of investing very long at low rates and borrowing at floating rates or short rates, they've not only lost the whole $100 billion that they would have made on the currency. But you know, they lost another hundred billion on top of that, uh, by making themselves into the biggest, I used, I like to say, the biggest savings loan in the history of the world, is inside our Federal Reserve. And that has been a very unfortunate speculation for them. Now, when they lose that money, they're spending your money, ladies and gentlemen. The Fed loses money, that's money that The treasury does not get; it increases the deficit, and it ups the debt of the United States. So the Fed is not just playing with its own money; it's already lost all the shareholders' money they invested in the Fed. It's now losing your money and running up the deficit, and it's doing this with no congressional approval. It did this on its own. Very interesting. Now that's going to take us into independence. But before we get there, I did want to pick up, Bob, on one thing you said. You said the Fed could print some dollar bills and buy a tank. That is not how it works. The uh, Treasury issues some debt. The Fed buys the debt. The Treasury gets the cash. It's actually a deposit in the Fed. And it uses that cash to buy the tanks or the welfare or build the roads or whatever. It's whatever the government is spending its trillions of dollars on. So by by buying the debt of the government, the central bank finances the government. And if it's financing that by creating money, which it does, we call that monetization. Uh, And this is the reason why now it has become the case that every government has a central, virtually in the world, virtually, every government has a central bank because it's so useful to the government. What do governments want to do? They want to spend money to make friends and buy buy votes and expand their power. Well, What do you do if you're out of money? You sell some debt to your central bank. The central bank buys it and then you, you spend it so central banks are enormously uh, valuable to governments when you read the public relations statements of the federal reserve about what it's there for you never find we're there to finance the government when it needs it but it's actually the most classic reason why all central banks exist going back to the bank of england in 1694 when the deal was very clear we'll give you this charter if you lend money to the king so he can fight wars against France.
1: Yeah. Just to clarify for people who like may have been jumping around, I was presenting what a listener might think happens. So I know that they, they go through the, the, the debt, uh, the treasury debt. Um, I know. I yeah, just okay. wanted to clarify. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a book with the Institute on money mechanics. I got to make sure. Yeah. We're not worrying about, Oh, this guy doesn't know the first thing about it. Um, so can you, I, uh, I suppose, like, this is great stuff, and I'm sure some people are like, okay, so what what does that mean? Like, is the dollar going to crash next year because of all this? Like, like, what's the implication of this? If a company's insolvent, that's kind of bad, right? So does that mean,
2: does that carry over here? No. And it's because of this uh, debility. Now, note, uh, under a gold standard, the central bank can go broke like anybody else because it can run out of gold, and it can't make any more gold, but it can always make new entries on its books to credit accounts. It can always order the government uh, currency operation to print up some more $100 bills. So it can't go broke in the sense of not paying its bills, uh, but it can keep on monetizing government debt, pushing uh, up on inflation. And it can keep losing money, which is actually taxpayers' money, which is running up the running up the the deficit, and the, and therefore the the overall debt of the country. They really have to. an Old friend of mine says, "Well, you really have to look at the Treasury and the Fed as one thing. They're really intertwined with each other." And you that's true. Under the original Federal Reserve Act in 1913, a very little known Fact is that the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board under the original act. Do you know this, Bob? I'm not sure what you're going to say. The chairman of the Federal Reserve Board under the original reserve act was by law the secretary of the treasury.
1: I could bluff and say I knew that, but I didn't know that. So, <laughs>
2: <laughs> so that shows you what, how they understood in the mm-hmm. beginning this thing was tightly intertwined and now the secretary of the treasury. And the Chairman of the Fed see each other all the time talk about these things and to strategize together. And I guess so it should be but what it shows you is uh, the Federal Reserve is part of the government and hand in glove with the Treasury both for financing the government and, and for other reasons. And um, we get a lot of uh, discussion about whether the Fed is independent, it's not. Um, couple of generations ago, they had a saying, which I think is very appropriate. They used to say, is the Fed independent? Well, it's independent within the government. <laughs> okay, what do you think that means? <laughs> well, for one thing, it means not really independent. They're very much in, involved in the government and we have to, uh, we have to understand, uh, understand that. And uh, in, in my opinion, and uh, we're going to talk about this some more, actually, at the forthcoming Mises Conference in Auburn on the dollar. Uh, the, in many important ways, the Fed should be less important because it should be in a system of checks and balances out of the Treasury, with the Congress, with the elected representatives of the people. That's really the constitutional design. Uh, and in my opinion, we need to uh, move in some important ways back toward there.
1: Uh Maybe just one final question here. Um, and this is all great stuff. I'm sure the listeners are learning a lot here. They, there might be some puzzlement, though, because before you said the Fed would not have intentionally put painted itself into this corner that they, they miscalculated, But then you're also seem to be saying there's no real ramifications for them. They can just print money. So can you just clarify, like, why would the Fed not want to be where it is right now if it can always just print money? Well, they don't
2: want to... uh There are several things. They don't want to print more because that printing more is inflationary, and and they've already created more inflation than they should have or than they they wanted to or thought they would. Mm -hmm. Another great example of their inability to know the future was all their wildly inaccurate uh, forecasts of inflation. Uh, They do not, when they are designed on purpose to make a profit uh, through the great Money printing monopoly that I told you about. It's embarrassing to lose money. You know, if you're a financial professional, you don't like losing money. It raises interesting questions, like we're thinking about. And this, by the way, is not only in this country, but in many countries right now, because many central banks do the same and are and are debating. Well, what does well, what does it mean that our central bank is technically insolvent and to spend all its capital? Then the Fed is worried about, well, this this create a political reaction? have members of Congress say, well, look at these guys. They must not know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. We better clamp down. That's what they really don't want. Actually, that's what I think would be a good idea. Right, right. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah,
1: so that's, yeah. That, that helps reconcile the understand that, yeah. They, so even though it's not that they need to shut their doors and say, out of business, fire sale, still, they don't, this is awkward for
2: them at the very least. It's very awkward. It's awkward at least and it is certainly politically threatening and it's credibility threatening. You know, well, what kind of a claim is it that you're making that you should be in charge of so-called managing the economy and setting interest rates and Mm -hmm. printing up money and and influencing the behavior of financial markets and therefore the allocation of credit and resources uh, and and, uh, supposedly uh, guiding the economy. Well, if you're so smart, how come you've just lost a $100 billion this year and going to lose another $100 billion next year? You know, that doesn't make you look too smart, does yeah. it? <laughs> Not at
1: all. <laughs> so at the very least, it helps shatter the illusion. So.
2: <laughs> uh, yes, and that way it's quite useful. I
1: think. Yes, right. So it actually is probably... A good thing that, you know, it was a well, very expensive lesson. From point of view. Yeah, it's expensive lesson, <laughs> but hey, any way to, to teach the public. Well, my guest this week, folks, has been Alex Pollack. Uh, we'll put a link to your, your website and the book you mentioned, um, Alex. So th- thank you for your time. This has been very informative.
2: Thank you. Great to be with you. Thanks a lot.
1: And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next
0: time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.